Welcome to the Curious Humans podcast. I'm your host, Johnny Miller. Hello, Curious Humans. Today, I'm excited to bring you a conversation with my friend and fellow breathwork junkie, Connie Bisalski. Connie and I have collaborated on a number of projects over the years, and we're both really aligned in our curiosities and our perspective on the world. In this conversation, Connie starts off by sharing some of her personal journey, her various heartbreaks and compartmentalization of her sexuality that led her from being a really successful travel writer into the world of personal development and ultimately to the work she's doing now as a breath coach. And from there, we we pretty rapidly dive into the nitty gritty aspects of breathwork and unpack some of the nervous system neurobiology that we've both been learning. She shares how some of the functional breathing practices have impacted her life and the lives of the clients that she's working with, uh, what it means to have a a dysregulated breathing pattern and how to begin correcting this. Uh, She goes on a a myth-busting role talking about some common misconceptions around the role of CO2. We both share our concerns with Wim Hof training and riff on the importance of of honing our sixth sense of interoception Um, and and really how incredibly helpful it's been for both of us to have a a more embodied understanding of the difference between what's known as the ventral and the dorsal vagal branches of our parasympathetic nervous system. So this might feel like a lot of information if you're just hearing this for the first time, but I encourage you to stay with it and my hope is that There'll be some real nuggets for anyone listening, regardless of of how much knowledge you currently have. And if this conversation resonates, I'd really encourage you to check out the pilot of the Nervous System Mastery Training that I'm putting together. It's designed to be an intensive five-week boot camp to reset and rewire your breathing patterns with weekly protocols, live Q&As, and accountability from a great group of humans. The cohort is, is almost full and applications close on October the 7th. So if you're hearing this in time and you'd be curious to dive in, check out nsmastery.com or check out the link in the show notes. All right, without further ado, I give you this deep dive conversation with my good friend, Connie. Okay, welcome to the Curious Human podcast, Connie. How are you feeling in three words right now? Mm, well, hello, first of all. <laughs> and currently I am feeling I'm feeling very grounded right now today. I'm feeling very connected. Um, and I'm feeling quite I'm feeling open. There's some, yeah, a, a quality of openness in my body and my mind. So thank you. Mm. Mm, beautiful. So as context for listeners, we met back here in Bali um, where you interviewed me for your great podcast uh, probably yes. over two years ago now, which is, uh, yeah. is actually one of my favorite podcast conversations I've, I've done. Um, and <laughs> I honestly can't believe it's taken me this long to have you on here. <laughs> That's cool. It's, it's divine timing. <laughs> yeah, so. yeah, and and your your surfboard has just appeared across the across the way over here as well. 
awesome. Uh, so, so you got some Connie vibes over there now. Yeah, <laughs> plenty of plenty of Connie vibes. <laughs> uh, so before we dive into into the deep end, um, I'd like to start with the question that you probably heard me ask a few times, which is, were you exceptionally curious as a child? And if so, could you tell me a story about something that you were curious about? Mm, yes. Oh, wow. Yeah, I was super curious as a child. And I was, I remember, uh, for one, I was always really interested in photography, for example, and making videos and stuff. And I'd just be documenting all sorts of things in my environment. And um, the other thing was that I was outside a lot. Um, and I wanted, to, I had a, an older sister, she's uh, three years older. And, you know, whatever she did, I, I wanted to do, I, need, I needed to try that out as well. And um, so I, I, I just remember that quality of um, wanting to try out everything. And my mom, actually, she, she confirmed that um, uh, a while ago and that uh, I had this, yeah, this openness to just wanting to do everything uh, that other people were doing and, and figuring things out on my own. And then I loved watching movies and I loved recording on VHS and like I had this massive collection of, of um, yeah, recorded movies and stuff. And, and there was this one particular uh, movie that I loved watching um, when I was like six, seven, eight years old. And it was about this little, this, yeah, this boy. And it was like set in the future where he had like a robot as a friend and like he had all these computers in his room and, and he had this alarm that was, you know, like a robot connected to his computer. It, it fascinated me, but it was all set in real world. And and I watched this movie over and over and over again. And I was so fascinated and curious about computers and robots. And, and so I wanted my first computer when I was like seven and which was not, which was a big deal back in the days, you know, because this yeah, is like yeah, the 90s yeah. and like <laughs> early 90s. So um yeah, I was always very, very curious about learning and, and understanding technology and yeah, yeah, yeah cool memory it's just now coming up there. Yeah, <laughs> oh, I love that. Um, and did you have any favorite books or stories growing up that come to mind? Books. Uh, actually, I read a lot of comics that I remember, <clears throat> but I was really into well, this one movie and um, and Indiana Jones and like all of this sort of stuff, and like the hero movies and the uh, the adventure movies. Um, and uh, yeah, Indiana Jones was probably one of my favorite uh, movie series of all times back in the day. And like things like the A-Team and, um, you know, the one with David Hasselhoff. What was it? With the car. Uh uh, I forget what it was called, um, where you could do all these things in his car, you know, and press all the buttons and it would fly. And uh, so that was huge. And um, yeah, so I was hugely into reading and not just comic books, all sorts of books that I could get my hands on and watching movies and, and stories and immersing myself and dreaming about them. And <laughs> mm. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Well, the, the reason that I like to ask the question is, I find sometimes the the types of stories that resonate with us when we're younger in some way go on to inform our, our life purpose to some degree. And it sounds like Indiana Jones type adventure themed stories um, was something that really resonated with you. And then knowing you that that definitely matches. <laughs> 
Yeah, the hero's journey one way or another, right? Like getting mm-hmm. on an adventure and then facing struggles and facing the demons and but having a clear sort of goal. Uh, yeah, that kind of resonates. <laughs> mm. Sure. Mm. Okay, well, um, I was thinking about the kind of, you know, the questions I was going to ask you for this this conversation. And I feel like I know you pretty well, but it's it's almost like in my mind, you had this former life before we met, which I know almost nothing about. Um, and I, I learned, for example, today that you were a scuba instructor um, back oh, yeah. in the day. So could you maybe share a little bit of your 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 wide ranging journey up until the point that we met two years ago in Bali? Just whatever, whatever kind of mm-hmm. comes, comes to mind. Yeah, for sure. So I always wanted to get out of this small little town in Germany that I grew up in in the south of Germany. And I managed to get away to do one of those exchanges when I was 15. Um, and I went to, to the States and I lived with the family. And, and this was a crucial point in my life because uh, once I'd come back, you know, I'd spend a year away from my family. And um, I mean, there were reasons why I wanted to get away as well. It's not like uh, it was just um, rainbows and unicorns, but there's, you know, issues in my family and just not feeling rooted and seen. And so I was always driven to go somewhere else. And then, um, and then I came back and I didn't, I had a really hard time uh, finding my place again um, in my family and in school. And then I was sent off to school in England, actually in Brighton, where you used to live as well. So I went, I went to school in Brighton for two years and I got my A-levels there. And, uh, and so by the time I was like 17, 18, I'd spent three years abroad already. And uh, this basically laid my path out uh, for wanting to just travel the world, live in different places. And that's what I just continued to do. Um, And always, I was an analog nomad for a long time. And one of the ways that I made a living also at some point after university was um, being a scuba dive instructor uh, in Indonesia, and then also in Australia. And eventually I came back, uh, uh, wanted to spend a year here with my partner at the time. Uh, She was Australian and and got a visa for a year. And and then we were going to head out again. And uh, I I, um, worked at a PR company um, uh, during that year and just realized very quickly that I'm a really bad employee. I don't like working for anybody else and for someone else's dream. And so I, I quit after eight months and started my own thing, freelancing. And I started a travel blog that um, eventually turned into uh, Germany's biggest travel blog. And it, it got really big, um, really fast. And um, I had uh, quite a lot of success in that realm and, you know, running an online business and, and had a few other projects going. And um, and at the same time, I uh, was, and this is uh, an important Sort of, um, sort of side story to all of this. I was in the closet until I was 26, 27 mm. um, in a, with my sexual identity and uh, really suffering th- through a lot of this, you know, and suppressing my identity, suppressing my truth, suppressing a lot of emotions. Um, it was, you know, looking back, um, it was a really, really, really difficult time that I did eventually have to pay the price for uh, in terms of my health and um, it just doesn't work out when we're not living who we really are and expressing who we really are. And so um, I started having some gut issues and skin issues in my 20s. Um, and yeah, eventually I did have my first girlfriend uh, when I was like 27 or so. And all these health issues went away. And uh, that 
you know, already showed me the, the, the connection between mind and body, you know, which is mm. so strong. And uh, I didn't know anything about spirituality or mindfulness at the time or mind body connection, you know? Um, and yeah, anyway, so I continued to be a digital nomad and uh, lived in Bali for several years and in the States and all over the place really. And went through a lot of darkness um, and when it came to relationships and, and lots of breakups and just a lot of toxicity and co yeah, codependency, um, mm. lots of attachment issues as I used to be very anxiously attached in relationships. And so I had to go through, yeah, a lot of, um, a lot of darkness throughout the years. And um, when, yeah, was on this healing journey, really, I really wanted to figure out what is wrong with me? That was my big question for many years, which is really not the right question to ask, but <laughs> it led me to all sorts of um, teachers and, you know, went to all the workshops and retreats and Tony Robbins and Joe Dispenza and, you know, all the, the plant medicine and, and whatnot, um, trying to figure out where my suffering came from and how, you know, and, and healing my wounding from, from childhood or wherever it came from. And so, yeah, I did a lot of therapy, a lot of coaching and eventually, um, I eventually explored breathwork and then uh, that just really hit a spot for me several years ago and I became more and more fascinated and interested and started studying it more and more and um, became, you know, I don't know, I've done several certifications by now, but um, mainly I teach uh, and, uh, and coach with um, transformational style breathwork deep dive breath work um, or dynamic breath work, but also oxygen advantage and buteco um, methods. And uh, yeah, that's what I do these days. And I'm in a healthy relationship. Uh, I managed to sort out my abandonment and attachment issues and uh, which I'm uh, super happy and stoked about. And um, that's roughly it in a nutshell, I think. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, there's definitely about a thousand different directions we could we could go right now um mm -hmm. what's what's coming to mind is like, if i think back to when when you interviewed me a couple of years ago i think we were both working on various different creative projects at the time um and now kind of two years later we're both pretty much gung-ho on on breath work and on sharing nervous system research in, in all of its forms do you think there was a moment for you that you realized that shift had really happened um, or what, what was that kind of process like for you? You mean the shift from what I was doing at the time to now being a full-time breathwork teacher? Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. It's interesting how, how these things happen. And, and um, I thought about this the other day because, yeah, so after the whole um, travel blog uh, business thing, and I eventually sold it uh, a few years ago now. And then I was a little bit, not lost, but I just, uh, yeah, tried out a few different things and really went down the whole YouTube and photography and filmmaking route. And I've always been a writer. And um, so just really immersing myself in my own creativity and, and creative pursuits and um, started several projects with that. And um, and, and then when breathwork entered the scene for me and, you know, in the beginning, when I started my certifications, I didn't really think I was going to teach any of that stuff. I was just curious, you know, I just wanted to learn more. Like I've done my yoga teacher training, uh, quite a few years ago now, and I, I didn't do it to teach. I just wanted to learn. So I, I wasn't really sure where, where I was going to go with that. And then, uh, over the last year or so, I felt that I was more and more being pulled into, into breathwork and teaching at the same time. I, I loved my creative pursuits and photography, filmmaking, writing, 
and you know had quite a successful newsletter and and whatnot and so I was really you know for a while it was I was torn um, because um, I knew that if I was to really put my focus on just one thing it would grow much faster and I'd you know just it would be more fulfilling than trying to do everything you know at once and so eventually it just it just organically evolved in a way that I ended up putting my focus on all things breathwork and suddenly I wasn't uh making any videos anymore I wasn't writing as much and um and then and now looking back you know the last six months or so um my breathwork business has has grown and um it's you know it's it's going really successfully and it's it's really fulfilling and um and I didn't I never made the conscious choice it just it just my soul just kind of pulled me in one direction and I just followed it and and I'm I'm glad I did. It doesn't mean I'm I'm not gonna go back to, you know, making videos and and pursuing my photography mm-hmm. and stuff. And I totally will. Um, but I also know that it's important to um, for a while to focus on on one thing to get the ball rolling and mm-hmm. to for the snowball effect and the compounding effect to kind of um, step in. And so that's where I'm at right now. I do sometimes I want to do more creative stuff again, uh, that, you know, the stuff that I did before, I also know that I'm not going to pick up where I left off. It's, that's going to be something new. It's going to be an iteration, like an upgrade to that. And I'm curious as to what that's going to be. Um, but sometimes, yeah, I want to sit down and, and, or yeah, I want to, I want to go and make videos and things and, but I, I just know right now I need my focus on, on all things breathwork. And it's, it's, yeah, it's fun. It's very fulfilling seeing, seeing something grow from a little seat to something bigger. Yeah. It's serendipity to step in as well. It's like when you, you know, it, that's the fun thing is when you really go all in on one thing, then suddenly the universe conspires. Mm-hmm. <laughs> serendipity yeah. steps in. So. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Well, before we kind of really get into the weeds, um, I feel like for listeners who might be relatively new to the term breathwork itself, um, could you kind of kick us off by defining what you know what, what breathwork is and why it's different from maybe other like more top-down approaches, and what are some of the different ways of, of like working with the breath? Mm, yeah, totally. So breathwork in and of itself, like the word. I think it's like it's more of an umbrella term, really, and it gets thrown around like candy these days, and uh, and it's really turned into a bit of a movement, and it's becoming more and more popular. And so, mm. a lot of times when we talk, you know, different people talk about breath work, but actually talking about different things. Um, so in one way or another, it's a way that we can use our breath to change our state. Um, our nervous system state uh, and change the gases, um, you know, within our bodies, um, especially oxygen and carbon dioxide. And and that has profound effects on how we feel, how we think, things like that. And so I like to always kind of, um, yeah, just divide breathwork into a couple of camps. Um, And one of them is breathwork as a daily practice to sort of shift our nervous system state to, to sort of regulate our nervous system state, let it be down-regulate uh, into calmness, um, uh, into more of a parasympathetic um, state, or up-regulating uh, into a more sympathetic state. Um, 
and and then we have the more transformational style the more more dynamic breath work you know um let's say you know a lot of people have heard of holotropic breath work um or the transformational style um coming from um not to be confused with transformational breath which is a a trademark uh school of breath work um and yeah and then there is rebirthing and and neurodynamic and so there there's so many different schools with with you know slightly different approaches um within the the more dynamic transformational breathwork um uh, camp um and so yeah that's how, that's kind of how i look at breathwork and it's important to distinguish these two because you, you get two very different effects. <laughs> and so, um, so let's say, you know, when we talk about transformational style breath work, it's, that's when we, we lie down for an hour or maybe 90 minutes or even two hours. Um, and that can be in a one-on-one, it can be in a group, um, like a breathing circle. And we would breathe to alongside a, you know, specific sort of designed music set. Um, and going through um, a process, you know, of eventually as we're breathing through an open mouth and not all of these dynamic practices are actually through an open mouth. There's a couple of uh, practices. They only do nose breathing, for example. Um, and it's what you and I, uh, Johnny and I, we both teach uh, conscious connected breath work, which is where we breathe through the mouth um, uh, without any gaps. We, we connect the in and the out breath. And um, the longer you do this after about five or 10 minutes, um, the uh, things start to happen in your body and in your brain, and you start to shift into an altered state of consciousness um, so that you can access parts of your subconscious and of your emotional world um, in a way that you normally can't like during the day. And so, um, or during the rest of your life really. And so um, eventually you hit a peak during the session, um, and then you come back down and it's, um, you know, it's more slower integrative music. And so it's, it's used mainly for, you know, emotional release process, emotions, um, process, you know, unprocessed trauma, um, but also for downloads and, and just, uh, yeah, sometimes like anything's possible really during a breathwork session. Sometimes it's, it's compared to, you know, doing, doing plant medicine. Um, so, uh, but without the side effects, <laughs> so, that, uh, so there's no vomiting or anything like that. Um, and yeah. And, and the other thing that the daily practice, um, the more sort of, um, yeah, the daily conscious breathing, uh, techniques that are out there and there's, uh, a big variety, right? I mean, it's, it's many of them come from pranayama from the yogic tradition, you know, thousands of years old. Um, and then there's, there's newer approaches to that as well. Like, um, we're trained in oxygen advantage, uh, by Patrick McEwen and, and he's, for example, um, he's also a Buteco teacher and, um, and that's more geared towards, um, yeah, um, regulating the nervous system um, to be able to um, also increase, yeah, increase our stress resilience, um, uh, increase our, our vagus, um, vagal tone, improve uh, our heart rate variability, things like that. But but also to be able to to you know in situations when we're facing challenges. Um, that we can use these sort of techniques in a way that um, we can regulate our nervous system more. And the way that also you say, Johnny, I think I read on your Twitter at some point, uh, and that I like to say as well, is that we perceive our lives through the nervous system, 
right? Mm-hmm. Um, and depending on what state that we're in, uh, depending on how big our window of tolerance is, um, yeah, that sort of equals our experience of life. And so mm-hmm. we can use breath work in that way to, as a daily practice, um, mm-hmm. to sort of set the foundation. And then we can also use it, you know, in in certain moments um, and use it as as necessary as required. So. Mm. Awesome. Yeah. Um, I I love that. And and I think we're really aligned in our approaches in that and we were kind of talking about this before we we hit record but we both recommend sampling as many different styles of breath work and and other things um and and something i'm really passionate about and i know you've written about as well is this idea of using interoception to tune in to what feels right and when um Mm -hmm. and so perhaps you could speak to what whether you call it autonomic awareness or interoception what does that mean for you Mm, yeah this one's huge because I used to be really disconnected from my body I I really wasn't home in my body for the longest time Mm. and and so when when we're you know due to trauma due to chronic stress um and when I talk about trauma, like I'm not just talking about shock trauma. Like I think there's a bit of a confusion as well around the term trauma. I think for me, trauma is anything from developmental trauma, um, attachment issues with our parents, um, needs that weren't met, um, uh, but also birth trauma, uh, prenatal trauma, ancestral trauma. There's so many ways that we, um, yeah, um, that we can hold on to. Uh, an energetic conditioning in our bodies or, or a um, nervous system conditioning in our bodies um, that uh, can cause in one way or another. Uh, in my case, for example, I was really disassociated from my body. I was really separate from my body. I didn't feel safe in my body. I just didn't feel connected to it. It was, you know, I remember my first yoga class and um, like in 20, I don't know, 10 or something. And the teacher was like, and now become aware of your breath. And I was like, whoa, I have a breath. I never, ever connected to my breath before. And so um, so I've come a very long way when it comes to uh, interoception. And by interoception, we mean, you know, becoming or, or the ability to to become aware of what's going on within your body. And and that starts with noticing or or sensing when our bladder is full and we need to go to the bathroom or, you know, feeling when we're hungry and, um, and, but also when it comes to emotions, you know, sensing fear in in our bodies or, or, you know, uh, where, where do you feel anger? in your body like um there's always a sort of uh, somatic signature attached to uh, any emotion and for the longest time i didn't you know especially when it came to dating and relationships i would have not i would have not identified as an anxious dater i just couldn't connect to the fear like i was super anxious <laughs> but i just i couldn't really feel it i couldn't identify the feeling as fear or or anxiety or something mm. But, um, and so through practices like yoga, like meditation, like breath work, but especially also somatic therapy, uh, psychotherapy, um, really having someone guiding me in that process to, you know, how certain things feel um, and becoming more aware of them. Um, and I think that that is really an essential skill to have as a human. Uh, and uh, you know, like 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 human 101, <laughs> like you always say too, is that 
having this connection to our bodies um, and, and, and really taking the, the signals from our bodies seriously as well, right? Mm-hmm. Rather than suppressing them or ignoring them or distracting ourselves. And so we're so used to in our, you know, in, in our modern world to, to be out there, to, to have our focus external. And um, we, you know, a lot of us are, like I said, there's many reasons why uh, we're like that, but also we're not taught to be in our bodies very much. I mean, I wasn't taught how to be in my body growing up. And, and so, um, yeah, it's for so many of us, especially the ones that are, uh, you know, very much up in their heads. And again, I used to just be really living from the neck up. Uh, and then doing computer work, being in our phones a lot, you know, staring at this place, thinking a lot um, for work, but also overall in life and being an overthinker, um, all of that happens in our brains and not in our bodies, really. And but still, there's a lot of stuff happening in our bodies. And so, um, yeah, I mean, looking at, you know, a lot of chronic illness that's going on these days, um, I mean, I just, I went to the, to the hospital this morning to get an x-ray done for my wrist and, um, there's a bit of an injury there, but, and then seeing so many, you know, sick people in the hospital and, and so many people with chronic health conditions. And, and I think a lot of that stems from the fact that we, we, yeah, we unlearned interoception, you know, we, Mm -hmm. we all, we always had it as babies, right? Like, Mm -hmm. oh, I'm hungry now or I, I, uh, I want to, I want to be cuddled or something. And so we cry, you know, and, and it was very intuitive. And, and then eventually we unlearn that and disconnect. And so I think a lot of chronic health issues, if, if we had more interoception, we were more connected to our bodies, we would sense the signals that, oh, wow, um, I'm experiencing a lot of stress, you know, and we would make adjustments or, um, you know, I, I don't know. I think there's, there is a lot to be said about the fact that humans, especially in the Western world, yeah, live from the, the neck up. And then we have to deal with a lot of health issues uh, to bring us back down. <laughs> yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, it's started absolutely pouring down with rain here. So hopefully it's not too loud in the background. Um, no, I can't but, hear it. Okay, cool. Um, but what, what comes to mind for me is, as you were sharing that is I've, I was actually just uh, twisting my aura ring on my on my hand here, and I think that these kind of wearable tech, whether it's an Apple Watch or an aura ring or, or a root band, um, for me at least, they've been really helpful in connecting with like if I get like a say I'm an eighty out of hundred rested, like connecting into my body, being like, oh, how do I like how do I feel? How does an eighty feel, or how does a, a sixty feel if I haven't really slept very well? Mm. And I think it's almost been this like trojan horse way of getting me to check in with my body at the start of every day and like mm-hmm. tune in to like you, you, what does my body need right now does it need more rest does it need a longer mm-hmm. meditation these kind of things so, so I, I think um it seems like things are trending in the right direction but um i, I agree with you and, and i can certainly relate to feeling very numb from the neck down for you know, most of most of my teenage years and certainly many of my, my 20s as well mm. But do you, don't you also find it quite interesting and a little ironic maybe that it's come to this point where we need devices to tell us how we feel? And I, I experimented with, you know, the whoop strap and um, and now I, I have a, a chest strap, the Polar, and then I use uh, the, an HRV app. But I, I only do it, you know, maybe once a week or sometimes I don't do it for weeks. Sometimes I do it three days in a row and whatever, like really just as a little check-in. 
Um, but yeah, it's, it's fascinating how, you know, we've developed in that way that, cause we are so disconnected, um, that we need, you know, that now, and, and it's a good thing too, because it actually helps so many people to, like you were saying, right? Like, oh, okay, I can, you know, uh, this is, this is my HRV today. This is my readiness score or whatever. And I can make adjustments and, and tune into how does that feel like? What, how does the number actually feel in my body? Things like that. So it's a great way to relearn, but, um, yeah, hope we can get back to, <laughs> I don't know, uh, a life where, yeah, it's just normal um to to live from to live life you know actually being at home in our bodies and yeah it's it's almost like an interoceptive crutch that kind of gets you to a yeah, point where you're yeah. where you're walking and then hopefully like like you say at some point besides the there's kind of like cool aspects of like seeing your heart rate variability change over time and i think it's definitely definitely good reasons to, to check in every once in a while but i i definitely mm. agree um so on that on that note i know that you've been working with many uh people and, and clients on a one-to-one basis what what types of transformations have you seen in some of the people that you've been working with what kind of changes you mean, have, you, have, you, have you noticed I, oh I, you as, mean as, me as a, as a coach mm-hmm. yeah 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 mm. yeah <laughs> yeah it's been quite fascinating working with people especially one-on-one and currently i'm uh, also running a group coaching program on all things breath work and nervous system and and so it's um it's fascinating to i mean the one-on-one coaching program was uh, a one-month program so i was working well actually it was more like two months but i was it was four sessions and uh and now the group coaching is six sessions and so um it's it's a it's a it's a short time frame right because a lot of the effects really only take place, I'd say three or four weeks into working with someone. Um, and so with the one-on-one coaching, for example, I, I realized very quickly, like doing weekly sessions, forget it, you know, mm-hmm. um, it's people for one need time to integrate and to, you know, to get into a rhythm with, with, um, new techniques and stuff, um, and, and daily routines. And also, um, I needed more time to see, um, to see the, see the effects. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, most of the people that I work with are very much so stuck in their heads. And so the most fascinating thing that I've seen and that just, yeah, feels really fulfilling to me as a, as a, as a breath coach and uh, as a coach in general is to see people um, coming back home to their bodies and to mm-hmm. connect to their bodies and to, um, to, deal with their anxieties better to um, slow down their mind to um, to have you know better sleep to um, better digestion to just being and I think actually even before that is to see people um, becoming more conscious of their nervous system in general and of the different states and then being able to then say, oh, wow, I was in, in dorsal, you know, yesterday. And, and now I have all these tools that I can use to come back into sympathetic and then back up into ventral vagus mm-hmm. where I can socially engage again and, and feel safe in the world and in my body. Mm-hmm. And so that in itself to see people connecting to their bodies, but connecting to the nervous system in that way, seeing them, how, you know, in the beginning, they struggle to do certain breathwork exercises um, and then eventually getting used to it and liking them and enjoying them and, mm-hmm. uh, and going away from, 
you know, it being another extra thing to do on their list in the mornings um, to integrating breathwork into their lives, you know, off the mat, especially. And, um, and really, yeah, seeing how, because breathwork, it's not just a daily practice. It's for me, like, breathwork is a lifestyle. It's, it's, for me, breathwork is about like, it's integrating conscious breathing in one way or another into everything that I do. And this morning I was in the hospital waiting for ages. I had to get up at 6.30 in the morning to go to this appointment. And I, I thought it was gonna take, you know, 10 minutes in out <laughs> to do an x-ray. Like it's not a big deal. And it, it took forever, right? The whole thing took two hours. And I was sitting there and you don't have any reception in the hospital. I think in most hospitals, I think they do that on purpose. And so you, all you can do is sit there. And, and so I use those, those opportunities to breathe and to, to do, I decided my morning practice as I was sitting there and just waiting and it calmed me down. And, you know, mm -hmm. so I could, you know, I was chill and other people were getting really annoyed. And so I love teaching people to use, you know, conscious breathing and breath work in, in all sorts of different situations, um, especially also while moving, um, not just while sitting, and, and that's something when I see people really enjoying breath work and having fun, and then also, of course, you know, guiding people through transformational style breath work sessions, seeing them release um, pent up sadness and, and anger and, and things that they've carried their whole life. And they come out mm -hmm. of a session, they're like, holy shit, I just feel so much lighter. I finally, you know, was able to release this big thing or, and just seeing that, um, just give me goosebumps actually just talking about it just now um, and being able to guide people through that process of, you know, finding a bit more emotional freedom. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Beautifully put. And um, you mentioned a couple of terms, uh, dorsal and ventral vagus. And I think it might be helpful for listeners to, if you could briefly unpack those and, and, and maybe even in reference to, you mentioned that you know previously you felt quite disembodied or disassociated from your body and maybe sharing mm. that in context with, with the dorsal i think would be really mm -hmm. helpful for listeners yeah totally so you know the conventional way that we look at the nervous system is there's two branches uh the autonomic nervous system i shall say uh there's the th sympathetic the you know mobilizing activating fight or flight uh, branch and then we have the parasympathetic the rest and digest um the the, the slowing down um part, a branch of the nervous system and and that's only partly correct really um because eventually uh stephen porges he i don't know quite many years ago now he identified a third branch of the nervous system um which he called the dorsal uh vagus state and um the vagus nerve in and of itself and, and many listeners might have heard of the vagus nerve um many people are talking about it these days just like uh, breath work and um it makes up a big part of the parasympathetic nervous system uh it's probably one of the most important nerves in our bodies and uh it runs from the brain stem uh down our neck uh esophagus down to the stomach uh diaphragm intestines all the big organs connected to the heart of course the lungs um and uh and so he identified that there's actually two branches of the the vagus nerve um and actually there's like it's not just one nerve running mm -hmm. through it's more like a highway right <laughs> 
Yeah, it's a highway and it's like a network and and of nerves really. And then also um, the vagus nerve is connected to many other cranial nerves. Cranial nerves are nerves that uh, originate in the brainstem. And, uh, and so it's connected to like very closely connected to some other cranial nerves um, that also have very important functions, especially in the face. <clears throat> so now we have the sympathetic um, branch of the nervous system. Then we have the ventral vagus um, branch and the dorsal uh, vagus branch. And essentially is that he identified that um, when people are uh, in shutdown, when they're in withdrawal, when they're immobilized. Um, and, you know, you can think of an, uh, uh, um, you know, uh, an animal. Um, and there's a couple of videos on YouTube that show this of uh, mm-hmm. how animals react in, in uh, when they're facing uh, a threat, like being chased by a lion. And there's this one video where, um, I don't remember what the animal was, but it was an being, impala, I think. Ah, uh, yeah, it's an impala, uh, chased by a lion, I think lion, it was, or yeah, and and uh, and it was like the lion had it in its mouth essentially, and then the impala just, just it appeared to drop dead, right, mm-hmm. and then the lion let go of it um, for whatever reason they're not interested when. <laughs> the animal just kind of drops dead um and he eventually backed off um and then the the camera keeps filming the impala uh after a while it started started shaking and and coming back to life and it it, you know was shaking and shaking and eventually it stood up and walked off as if nothing ever happened sort of but anyway that animal went into shutdown uh and then there's another form, like uh, if you think about the, a deer in the headlights, right? And it's just uh, like a deer crossing the road and, you know, you're approaching it in your car and it's nighttime and then it just stops frozen, right? So that state's also called the, free, called the freeze state. So there's different varieties of um, the, the freeze state, the dorsal vagus state. So we have these three states now. And essentially, um, in terms of evolution, it's quite interesting too, actually, that the dorsal state was the first one to develop. So when we were, even before we were fish, essentially, all we could do in the face of threat was to just shut down, (laughs) immobilize, freeze, (laughs) and then just kind of hope to not be eaten. And... um, and then the second sort of stage of evolution was our sympathetic nervous system. So we were then able, you know, we were fish uh, and then we were able to uh, run away, you know, flee or fight. And then the third uh, like stage of evolution was the ventral vagus, um, which is all about social engagement. So when we were faced, when we're facing a threat, you know, let's say uh, an angry neighbor or something, um, we can first talk <laughs> before we start either running away or, or hitting them or, you know, immob- uh, going into freeze. So that's a very new sort of invention by evolution is being, you know, the, the social engagement part. And that's also when, when we're, when we're in ventral Vegas is when we feel safe, like we feel safe in our environment. We feel safe within our bodies. Uh, we feel, um, we feel connected. Um, and, uh, 
yeah so whereas in the in the in the free state in dorsal um and i experienced um dorsal a lot actually over the years was being depressed for example um feeling hopeless um these sorts of uh, states and and thoughts that can um go around in our in our minds um and and that was and that's interesting how that was never really taken into consideration it's almost as though oh yeah when you're depressed um mm -hmm you're not in fight or flight, right? You, so like, what are you? And, and Stephen Porges eventually um, came up with that theory and, and uh, the theory of social engagement as well. Because when, we, when we're in dorsal or when we're in sympathetic, like it's hard to be uh, socially engaged and to have a nice relaxed conversation or when we're depressed, like, you know, I used to just totally not want to leave the house and interact with anybody. But in dorsal, we are like our nervous system is still in survival, right? Like we're still in survival mode. It doesn't actually mean that uh, like we might not be in sympathetic, uh, but we're definitely not in parasympathetic either, right? We're not in a relaxed state of mind or body, you know? And so um, I find that really, really interesting because um, it's still quite detrimental to our nervous system and thus to our overall health. And so, um, yeah, I think that sort of uh, answers it. But yeah, coming back to dissociating from our bodies, um, which is definitely more connected to the dorsal state, because um, we're not feeling safe in our bodies, and uh, and so we we disconnect. Um, we um, it's it's more safe to be living up in our heads. And I mean, there's people out there, uh, and I've worked with with clients um, who had issues just focusing on their breath. It made them anxious. Mm -hmm. And, um, so we're so disconnected. We're so, we feel so unsafe in our bodies that just being in them doesn't feel good, makes, makes us anxious. And, mm -hmm. um, yeah, so it's quite fascinating to look at the nervous system from, from the polyvagal sort of lens and, mm -hmm. and, uh, it, it explained a lot for me. And also, you know, if you look at it as a ladder, right. So dorsal at the bottom, then you go up the ladder into sympathetic. And then on the top is the ventral vagus. And, and essentially when we're in dorsal, we first need to be mobilized. We need to work our way up into sympathetic first and to then come up into, um, ventral vagus. Um, so for a lot of people who are stuck in dorsal, um, who might be very lethargic, um, you know, procrastinate a lot, have a really hard time getting out of bed, you know, like that feeling of hopelessness and 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 being depressed and whatnot. Uh, chronic fatigue actually is is one uh, also expression of uh, being in dorsal a lot. Um, for them, it might not be the best idea to just do a sitting breathing practice and, um, they might just get really tired and even more tired and more lethargic. And so for these people, I, uh, often recommend to, you know, maybe dance first and then, uh, or shake their body, like feel their body first in a way that's not threatening before sitting down for a, a breathing practice, or maybe even just have them do uh, a walking breathing practice, you know, um, mm -hmm. outside in nature, for example, things like that. So it, the polyvagal theory really helps me understand my clients better. Um, mm -hmm. and I wish that, more not just breath workers but also therapists and, and psychologists mm -hmm. and stuff had more of an understanding of polyvagal theory um mm. because they were yeah you need different approaches depending on 
you know, yeah. where people end up that like, it, you know, when we look at the window of tolerance um, and then when we fall out of that window of tolerance where we can sort of navigate life, like, of course, we always get triggered in one way or another. Right. And uh, that's just life. It's there's stress. It just happens. It's part of life and it's good. But sometimes in some of us, due to trauma and, and chronic stress, we fall out of that window of tolerance and we might fall into hypo arousal, which is dorsal, um, or into hyper arousal, which is sympathetic. And those are people that are super anxious. Um, they get panic attacks. They're just super stressed and, and constantly doing something. And they have a really hard time to slow down and um, really hard time to find calm. Um, and so, yeah, we need different approaches for depending on where people are at with their nervous system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I find this stuff so fascinating as well. And it's almost been like a new lens for me to kind of view my own experience in, in many ways. Mm. And um, I, the metaphor that resonates with me is this idea of the, the ventral being like a brake in a car and the dorsal mm. almost being like the handbrake. And the ventral mm -hmm. vagus is much, I, I think it has greater myelination. So it, it's almost got much more sensitivity. And so that's really, I think what, like what I've realized is, is I'm training in myself and in the people I work with the capacity for using the ventral break, which requires that kind of felt sense of safety. And I think that's what yes. is really coming online for, for a lot of people. And I was even thinking, um, I was in a busy cafe uh, the other day and I was kind of stressed out. And um, I read that, even the the muscles in our inner ear will change when we're in this sympathetic mm -hmm. state and when when the when the ventral isn't online and it kind of changes yes. our capacity to listen our, our gaze will become more narrow and focused and mm -hmm. because we're kind of preparing to fight or flight and it's just been such a helpful lens and like a check-in for myself like am i in that kind of ventral state and and also thinking about how they can be combined like when i'm playing with with carla our puppy it's like I'm in both sympathetic and I'm in ventral. It's like I'm activated, but mm -hmm. I feel like safe. And I, state. It's it's yes. like a mixed state, exactly. It's like mm -hmm. combining combining the two, and yeah, it's just such yeah, it's... a such an interesting lens, huh? Totally, and and I like working with my clients to map out their nervous system in that way, so that mm -hmm. uh, you know, I would I would start out and um, I'd present the different states and, and make them understand, you know, how they feel or what, how they might feel really. I mean, it can be different for, uh, for everybody, uh, how they might feel, um, what we might think, uh, how the world appears. And so, um, so we go through these different states and they identify how they feel in each state. Usually, you know, when they think of a situation, how, you know, what's going on in their mind, um, what they, what they believe, about the world, um, how the world is, things like that. And, and, and so in that way, we, we're creating this map and that in itself is really important because they, then they're, they're building on their awareness and they're, you know, and, and then being able to, you know, as they go about their lives, they can track where they're at with their nervous system, or mm -hmm. maybe at the end of the day, they can look back and be like, Oh, so this morning when this happened, I went into sympathetic, mm -hmm. uh, cause I had this argument with my partner, but then I actually went into dorsal cause I went into shutdown. I didn't want to talk. I just kind of yeah. shut the door and, um, and then I came back into ventral because I had this really good conversation with my best friend. And, and so, and then, you know, the next step is to then map out, 
you know, triggers, like what are triggers? What, what are things that trigger me into dorsal? What are things that trigger me into sympathetic, but also what are things that keep me in ventral? And then, so we, we map that one out and then uh, they're called triggers and glimmers. Glimmers are, are uh, you know, what, what helps me stay in ventral, um, which is a lot about play, actually things that put me into flow. Um, uh, and then, uh, and then also coming up with, with like a map for, uh, what, what resources can I access and use to get me out of dorsal, to get me out of sympathetic, um, and to stay in ventral. And so, and what are resources that I can use to self-regulate and what are resources that I can use to co-regulate? So with somebody else, and that's another important concept, right? With, uh, polyvagal theories, co-regulation, like we're not like no human is an Island, right? It just doesn't work like that. We're, we're wired for connection. We're wired for, to be in relation. And so I, um, yeah, I think the, the topic of co-regulation and our hyper independent world is totally underestimated because yes, there is definitely like, it's, it's, it's important to learn how to self-regulate something that I had to learn um, uh, for a very long time, but then also being okay to seek help or to seek out co-regulation, seek out support mm. from another human being or from mm. a pet even like yeah, dogs. Yeah, we, 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 we've, like we've been... We've been naming Carla our co-regulation puppy. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I mean, no kidding. That's yeah. why a lot of people, especially really? those living alone, you know, mm -hmm. and then going through the uh, panini crisis, as I like to call it, um, where uh, a lot of people are, yeah, living life very much isolated. Um, having mm -hmm. a pet is, is, is really helpful in healing for co-regulation, for sure. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and the the, the distinction between co-regulation and, and self-regulation is is really important. And I also think that self-regulation can be kind of divided up into like unconscious and conscious, or, or deliberate and yes. like habitual. And I think that mm -hmm. bringing awareness to because we, we all have self-regulation kind of habits, whether or not we we realize it. For some people, it might be mm -hmm. drinking a glass of wine or a beer at the end of the day. It might be might be smoking. It might you know mm. kind of um, there's there's a whole list of things. And I think feeling empowered to self-regulate with something like breath work or, or, or going for a walk and, and kind of having mm -hmm. one which is more conducive to long-term health that doesn't have the side effects of, of uppers or downers or stimulants or whatever pills people are people are taking um i think that's yeah also... because we we already self-regulate all the time right right, we right. like and so most of us have learned certain ways that are maybe not as healthy, uh, but we do them unconsciously. Let it be scrolling through social media, for example, as a way to self-regulate as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I remember, yeah, I remember a couple of years ago when I was going through a breakup and um, a lot of times I would just find myself scrolling mindlessly through social media because it, it helped me to self-regulate some sadness or anger. It just did um and uh and sometimes it was really hard to do the thing that was the healthier choice actually you know um and uh and so we do it all the time and so it's really about bringing awareness to them yes and then mapping out ways that um we can maybe um do things more consciously instead of maybe having that glass of wine or two or three uh, that's also a way to self-regulate in one way or another um or coffee is a way to upregulate right? Um, not, I'm not saying, you know, that this is good and this is bad at all. Um, I'm just saying that, yeah, like there are conscious ways and, and unconscious ways and to increase or to, to, to um, make the toolbox bigger, 
of, yeah, of more conscious, absolutely. healthier ways. And, and I, I tell my clients to like, we, we, we map it all out and then they've got it all written out. And then of course they can add to it and, and then to just put it up on their fridge or somewhere where they can see it, you know, mm, um, not just have it on their phone, but, but yeah. really having, having these lists and that those, those maps um, mm. visible mm. in their environment. Yeah. That's, that's mm. great. And so um yeah, what comes to mind is is if I was to like use myself as a case study, let, let's say that I, I come to you and I, I feel like my heart rate might be quite high and that maybe I have trouble falling asleep. Um, maybe I've experienced a burnout in the past. And I'm kind of curious to see how breathing connects to this, but I'm not really sure where to begin. Like how would you, mm. or what tests or questions might you ask me or this hypothetical client um, to kind of gauge if I actually do have a dysregulated breathing pattern? Um, mm. and then what be might some what might be some starting points to begin to establish a healthier one yeah totally well so um i guess there's an easy way to assess whether someone has a functional or, or dysfunctional breathing pattern um going on so generally people who deal with anxiety a lot and have a lot of chronic stress going on overthinking um, very much, much up in their heads. Um, they find it really hard to calm down. They, they struggle to sleep. These are like, basically all of them are indicators that there's some sort of, uh, an unhealthy breathing pattern going on. Um, and so what is dysfunctional breathing? Well, dysfunctional breathing is how, like, how do we breathe when we're stressed, when we're in a stress response, right? And usually that is, we breathe from the chest. Uh, we breathe through our mouth. Um, we're breathing faster. Um, we are breathing maybe more irregularly. Uh, it's, it's heavier, it's noticeable, it's louder. Mm. Uh, maybe we're sighing a lot uh, or yawning a lot. Mm. Uh, and I've had people who say, oh, no, I think I have a pretty, I have a healthy breathing pattern. I, I you know, breathe slow and my aura ring tells me, I, I don't know, whatever, 14 breaths <laughs> per minute. And there's a pause, like we, we'd like to have a pause after the exhale um and uh and things like that and 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 then i'm like but do you yawn a lot do you sigh a lot oh yeah 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 i do actually you know quite often actually and i often feel like i can't i can't get enough air you know and i'm like well there we go you know um so people don't even even notice it consciously a lot of times um, that they have a dysfunctional breathing pattern it's really only something we um become aware of uh, either when something's wrong or we talk to someone who knows about breathing um so then so then what is a functional breathing pattern well it's basically the opposite it's uh breathing into our bellies using i mean we're always kind of using our our diaphragm even when we're chest breathing but um you know a lot of us have really tight diaphragms um especially from chest breathing because we're just using the muscles up here maybe even our shoulder muscles is also why a lot of people have um, neck pain or um, back pain and so using our diaphragm, we're really feeling our ribs move out and on the inhale and, and move back in on the exhale. Um, it's a slower breathing. So they say uh, the average like functional breathing uh, respiratory rate per minute is between 10 and 14. Um, and everything above that is, is considered fast breathing and, and thus dysfunctional breathing. Um, and there's studies out there that show that even just 20 years ago, uh, yeah, most people were at like, you know, 10 to 14, maybe let's say 10 to 16. And these days, most people are in a range of 14 to 20. 
you know, and mm-hmm. that's so breathing rates on average have increased um, a lot. Yep. That like, that's a lot more breathing every minute. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. And yeah. I, I, I just, I just add to that before you continue. I, I think for me, the, mm-hmm. the point that it's dysfunctional is that it's not matching the environment, right? It's, it's not matching the stimulus. So it's not dysfunctional to necessarily breathe. This is breathe addressed, mouth. right? Breathing breathing at rest yeah yeah at rest yeah yeah completely because I I think it is important that we have the dynamic range and that's kind of what we're training to some degree it's like training a repatterning of the of the three diaphragms so that breath can move fluidly throughout them and that we can really drop into the the resting kind of ventral state that we talked about before exactly yes um and also you know sometimes I find that other breathworkers they teach to just do belly breathing I'm like well actually we don't just, we don't want to isolate our chest completely. We roughly want about 80, 20, right? So we want 80% of the movement. If you look down now at your breathing, we want 80% to be, you know, your ribs, your belly. And then we want about 20% of your chest moving. Like we still want your chest moving a little bit, just not the 80%, the other way around. Um, and then nose breathing is huge. Um, Cause that in itself uh, is connected to the diaphragm um, and also to our parasympathetic nervous system. And that's the vagus nerve. Um, we want to, yeah, we don't want to hear your breathing. Um, and uh yeah, so nose breathing connected to the diaphragm, um, nose breathing, yeah, connected to the sympathetic, uh, parasympathetic part of the nervous system. Um, we don't want to hear someone breathing, so um, breathing at rest should be nice and chill. Uh, you shouldn't really see it uh, or hear it. Um, and uh, and yeah, so that's roughly you know, the, the comparison dysfunctional and and functional breathing patterns. And Mm. it's always, I don't know, sometimes I'm not a huge fan of calling something dysfunctional. So yeah, I actually like to stick to healthy and unhealthy breathing patterns. Mm. (laughs) Um, And and so then the, 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 I guess the big question is though, why is it such a big problem, right? Like why is Mm. breathing in this manner, uh, a big problem? And um, in summary, the problem with, a, a an unhealthy breathing pattern um, is that we're breathing in too much air. We're essentially over breathing, and that in effect um, disrupts our the the breathing gases and 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 the balance that we need to have there, especially when it comes to carbon dioxide and oxygen. And so when we're breathing faster, when we're breathing through a mouth, uh, when we're chest breathing. Um, all those things, they, uh, we get rid of a lot of carbon dioxide. And so um, a lot of people think that uh, that carbon dioxide is just a waste gas, right? Um, but there's actually so much more to CO2 um, than most of us know. And it's just, there's so many breathing myths floating around out there, right? Mm-hmm. And, and one of them is the more we breathe, the more our body gets oxygenated and but it's actually the other way mm-hmm. around. Um, and so it's important to understand that uh, carbon dioxide is the primary stimulus to breathe. Um, and what that means is also that um, we need a certain level of carbon dioxide um, in our bodies. Um, and roughly, um, it's said that we need an average level uh, of 40 uh, milligram per mercury, which is how they measure um, carbon dioxide in our bodies. It doesn't really matter. Uh, and um, but let's say we need 40. OK. And so when we're over breathing and uh, this uh, this level of carbon dioxide is chronically 
low, um, we become very sensitive to carbon dioxide and it's build up in our bodies. Now, as I just mentioned, we need um, uh, CO2 in our, in, in, in our bodies uh, because it's the primary stimulus to breathe. It's actually not oxygen. A lot of us think it's the decrease in oxygen uh, that prompts us to breathe when we're holding our breath, but it's actually the increase in CO2. And if you were to measure um, your SpO2 or you know the amount of oxygen uh, saturation in your blood, uh, even if you were to hold your breath right now for a very long time, it would still hover at around 95 to 99%. You need to do quite a bit of intense um, breathwork practice and, pre and breath holding to get below 91, um, which is then considered uh, hypoxic. Mm -hmm. so, um, so carbon dioxide enables oxygen to be released from the red blood cells. And it's, uh, it's related to the Bohr effect. Um, and, uh, and essentially we need a certain level of carbon dioxide um, for oxygen to be delivered to the brain, to the organs, to the muscles, uh, for increased blood flow, things like that. Um, carbon dioxide is a vaso and bronchodilator, meaning it, um, it dilates our, our veins um, and our airways um, and it stimulates the vagus nerve. And, uh, and yes, lastly, it also eliminates waste from the body. So there's a lot of jobs that carbon dioxide has. And when we get too sensitive to the buildup of CO2, um, we uh, offload, we off gas too much CO2, um, which in and of itself eventually leads to chronic overbreathing. So, you know, as generally as babies, if we didn't have a birth trauma or anything uh, related to that, then normally babies breathe very organically. You know, you see their ribs moving and uh, the, the, uh, yeah. And so essentially, um, eventually we learn, we condition ourselves to start breathing from the chest. Um, and that can also can be uh, related to trauma um, when we're uh, consistently in a, a stress response, right? When our, our nervous system uh, is uh, in sympathetic a lot, uh, a lot more than it, than it should be. Um, our breathing pattern changes um, because when we're breathing from the chest, when we're mouth breathing, those are direct signals to the brain that our body is in danger, that there's a threat and it goes into sympathetic mode. And so that's where the connection comes in between how you think and, and, and how you feel is, is how you breathe. And the other way around, how you breathe is how you feel and how you think and how you live. And so um, it's all connected because the way we breathe impact impacts our uh, biochemistry. Uh, it impacts our endocrine system, our hormonal system. Because when we're in sympathetic mode, um, we uh, produce a lot of adrenaline and then cortisol. Um, and so um, we can change the way we breathe and that's changed the way we feel, changed the way we think and changed the way we live, mm. um, mainly because um, there's all these connections between the breath and our nervous system. And so, for example, every time we inhale, we activate our sympathetic nervous system. And every time we exhale, we uh, stimulate our vagus nerve, our parasympathetic part of the nervous system. And so there's this direct connection, which is so fascinating. Mm -hmm. And so that our breath is the remote control for mm -hmm. our nervous system. And so if I change to heavy breathing right now, you know, hyperventilating, 
Wim Hof style, I'm going straight into sympathetic mode. I might feel maybe more energized, um, but I'm in sympathetic mode, right? And if I then want to bring myself back down again into a calm state, I can slow down my exhales, right? And thus um, stimulate my vagus nerve more. Um, and so there's all these different ways that we can play with the breath and then yeah. um, and affect our nervous system, so. Yes, that, that, that was awesome. And for, um, for listeners who might be in a, sympathetic state since <laughs> all of this amazing science um I, a thought occurred that might tie it back to what we were sharing around the, the ventral and the dorsal in that um I've been researching burnout for the last couple of years and what typically happens when someone goes through burnout is is they will have a breathing pattern like this that keeps them in that sympathetic state for long periods mm -hmm. of time and where the dorsal kicks in is when we've been in that that state of chronic stress kind of high tone sympathetic um for for so long that the body eventually just shuts down and when it shuts down that's when the dorsal kicks in and that's usually when like the brick drops and they're like oh shit i'm burnt out and they might cry they might you know need to go off work for six weeks that kind of thing and that's just they're kind exhausted of fatigued right completely yeah. yeah can't get out of bed um it's because that dorsal totally. kicked in after a period of extended uh chronic chronic stress mm. And isn't it fascinating to understand, you know, burnout in that way and then be totally. able to, to help people move through, mm -hmm. you know, into, into ventral again and, and, and be able to explain to them what actually happened. Because I think what happens when we learn about the nervous system and about the breath and how, and about polyvagal theory, things like that is it, that. Right? Yeah, normalize it. And, and I feel like I can, you know, it, it helped me so much back then also because I was able to have more compassion towards myself. Mm -hmm. It wasn't that mm -hmm. something was wrong with me. My body was doing, you know, it was doing its best. Exactly it what really, it was designed for. Really yeah. trying hard. Exactly. Completely. You know, and, and so when I struggled with gut issues again and with like dermatitis and eczema and things like that, I could understand that my body was really trying to keep uh, everything in homeostasis. But when, mm -hmm. you know, I was going through all, all these um, anxious dating scenarios and going through so much anxiety and being in sympathetic mode for years and years, um, I was making it really hard for my body to, to keep all my systems in balance. And so, mm -hmm. you know, understanding it from that perspective, yes, I was just able to um, be kinder to myself, you know, and mm -hmm. uh, cultivate a bit more self-love also in that regard. And and yeah. I think a lot of us, we beat ourselves up and especially a lot of, you know, you know, people that you work with also in the startup scene, they're high, you know, they're type A's, overachievers, perfectionists, and then things, something like a burnout happens. And then we beat ourselves up for it. Like what's wrong with me? You know, why can't I keep performing the way that I used to? Um, and then people uh, not understanding what's happening in the nervous system. You know, we try to push ourselves more and more and more only to aggravate the symptoms. And mm -hmm. um, I listened the other day to an interview with this uh, Swedish um, triathlete uh, and very successful triathlete for, for many years. And eventually he also hit burnout. And it was an interview with Patrick McEwen from the Oxygen Advantage. And, and, Patrick, and Patrick asked him an interesting question. He said, what were signs and symptoms that your body sent to you before you had, you know, you read like you hit the big brick wall <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. we're not like because then the, the athlete after he had burnout he said I was basically in bed for like a year I, mm -hmm. I just couldn't do anything and so then that and I found that interesting you know as he was sharing all these things um that uh he was ignoring 
because there's yeah. signs and yeah. symptoms well, it, it's, and, and messages, it, it, right? It ties back to interception, right? What yeah. we were talking about earlier. And yeah. then there's this, this idea, I like to talk about this, like feather, brick, dump truck moments. And often mm. we will receive the feathers and the bricks, but if we don't have sufficient interoceptive capacity, then we have to wait for the dump truck. <laughs> yeah, it's so true. And so if we were more connected to our bodies, if we had better interoception, um, and, and I mean, we can have interoception and still ignore. It. ignore. <laughs> it's, it's harder. <laughs> but, it's possible. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, uh, interoception definitely makes it easier to not ignore as well. But I think there's also part of us that needs to, you know, develop some self-compassion and some, you know, mm. just like some sensitivity and, um, which is hard for type A's, right. And overachievers, like, um, because we want to, we want to be go, go, go. And, 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 and it's, it's hard to slow down when we're, you know, on that lane of type A and, and building businesses and, you know, being, I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's full on. And so, um, yeah. I think that, that, that is, that's so important is to really learn to, to read, the messages that our body sends us because there's so much that we ignore before we hit the brick wall yeah, for sure totally totally and and it's also i think for a lot of people they can feel unsafe in, in some ways to actually feel genuinely relaxed in the body mm-hmm. um and, and it's so much easier to default to more activity and more kind of distraction yes. um which, which well, is why like I, addiction to stress mm-hmm. right to yeah, adrenaline. like yeah. our bodies get addicted to to stress hormones right. it sounds weird but it's true and it's not even that we can consciously control that. It's like, it's, it's really this feedback loop, right? And, and then we need our bodies to produce adrenaline uh, to feel a certain way that we're used to and to feel safe in our bodies. And so mm-hmm. we keep doing things that put us into that state without even realizing that we're in this, in this loop of chronic stress. And, yeah. and I think that with, with type A's and overachievers, so then they already have really stressful days you know with their jobs um and i think you know and then you see a lot of those people doing crossfit or like full-on mm. weightlifting right and right, right. <laughs> and do, or ashtanga yoga like really full-on exercise you know um yeah. even more you know stimulating their sympathetic uh, totally. branch of the nervous which, system. which is, is a nice segue to um i was going to ask you about uh myth busting but you've actually covered three of the four already um but the, I, I think that's the crossfit piece is a good one to talk about um Wim Hof breathing and how mm. I think many people think that it's kind of a good practice for everyone um why might that not be the case yeah I mean the Wim Hof breathing oh, gosh yes so <laughs> I uh, <laughs> um I experimented a ton with Wim Hof breathing, uh, especially last year, actually. And I was, I was dealing with some skin issues and, um, and I tried Wim Hof and in the beginning, it made me feel really good. And, um, as a recovering type a, you know, it's great to be able to hold your breath for really long and to (laughs) increase your breath hold time and, um, and all of that. And, and it's, it's like, CrossFit and Wim Hof breathing, I mean, they're geared towards type A's, you know, and they're like type A's are especially attracted to these kinds of practices because they, mm-hmm. we can push ourselves even harder. Yeah. And so, so I, I did, but 
you know, after a while, after a couple of months, it, it didn't really do much, you know, for me. Um, and I went into a few Facebook groups, Wim Hof Facebook groups, not, not um, moderated by any of the official Wim Hof people, but um, just people sort of um, supporting each other. And I saw many, many people posting in these groups, the struggles that they had with um, Wim Hof breathing. And, um, and then I did my oxygen advantage training and I learned why that is and why many people struggle with Wim Hof and why it's just not um, the best practice uh, for so many people out there, especially not on a daily basis, you know, like doing this on a daily basis. Like now I have to really like shake my head, like, <laughs> you know, remembering myself doing this on a daily basis yeah, and thinking that it would, it would change my health. But essentially, yeah. you know, what happens is that when we do Wim Hof breathing, we're, we're over breathing. Um, I know Wim Hofers don't like it when we call it hyperventilating, but that's what we're doing. We're off gassing a lot of CO2 and that's hyperventilating. And um, so we're over breathing. So we're, we're, we're putting ourselves into sympathetic mode. Um, we're getting rid of too much CO2. And there's studies on this now that look at this um, specific phenomena, what happens. So we're taking 30 breaths, fast breaths in and out. Um, and then we do a breath hold. <clears throat> and so then the argument um, would be that, well, I'm, you know, I'm doing the breath hold. So my CO2 levels come back up and that should uh, compensate, right, for the overbreathing. Well, but then you do a second round of 30 breaths, fast breaths in and out, usually, you know, in through the nose, out the mouth, or even just through the mouth. Um, and then you do another breath hold. And a lot of times you can hold your breath for even longer after your second round. And then you do a third round. And then a lot of people do a fourth round and a fifth round. And so what happens is with every round that you do the hyperventilation, your SpO2 or the oxygen uh, saturation in your blood goes down, right? And you can measure this uh, very easily on your own um, with one of those oxy oh, oximeter oh, devices. Yeah. yeah. And, and so, and the argument that the breath hold um, reestablishes a CO2 balance in your blood um, is faulty because there have been studies on this and that clearly show that the breath holds do not compensate for the overbreathing. The, the SpO2 stays too low and um, carbon dioxide levels stay too low. Um, yeah. And so what that also means is that with this practice, the reason, so there's two reasons why people feel really good doing the Wim Hof breathing. Number one, it uh, triggers adrenaline release and adrenaline is a stress hormone and it kind of feels good. And so we get addicted to that. And the second thing is that um, when we hyperventilate um, for periods of time, uh, there's actually less oxygen and blood flow to the brain. Um, and that in itself can shut off or, or slow down certain parts of the brain, especially the rational brain. Um, and it is actually also what happens during a deep dive 60 minute uh, conscious connected breathing session. That's what happens. That's why we can access these altered states of consciousness, right? But I feel like there's a bit more purpose to that. And also uh, it's something that we don't do on a daily basis. You know, maybe you do it once a week, even though I recommend even to just do it maybe, you know, once every two weeks. But 
yeah and so um so that's why it, it we feel lighter we're maybe not as much as you know in our heads or thoughts slow down but it's not the effect is not sustainable so we feel that way for maybe a couple of hours afterwards and then we have to do this again the next day because we got to feel that way again we got to feel you know mm -hmm. the adrenaline rush and but it doesn't it doesn't actually help with our breathing pattern and so a lot of people that have uh, low bolt scores or control pauses, and that's basically a test where you can assess someone's breathing pattern. It's a, it's a breath hold test, very simple. But um, if you're below a certain number, um, then it's very clear that you have unhealthy breathing pattern going on. And then doing something like Wim Hof breathing every single day will aggravate the mm -hmm. overbreathing. will act, will yep. actually make your yep. uh, breathing pattern worse and not better. Yep. And so if someone has a healthy breathing pattern, you know, like a bold score above 25 or, you know, at best, you know, above 30, I mean, be my guest to go and do your Wim Hof breathing. If it, you know, if he if needed so bad, but it, it doesn't really like, it doesn't really sustainably do anything for your, for, for most of people's health. And, um, and so what's, what's way more effective and that's more of the Buteco and the oxygen advantage um, framework is to um, like how can we increase our CO2 tolerance that's the big question that yep. they ask and yep. you don't increase your CO2 tolerance by off-gassing a lot of CO2 like Wim Hof breathing you actually need to train yourself to become comfortable with breathing less and by by becoming more comfortable uh, in tolerating air hunger that's that should be the goal and and so that's why a lot of the practices uh, with Buteco and oxygen advantage uh, are all about breathing less uh experiencing air hunger doing breath holds um but very controlled breath holds nothing crazy like it's not about pushing yourself uh like it's not about speed it's not about it's like there's nowhere to get to it's just yeah and it's a very a lot gentler and a lot more it's and, and the other thing is also i find with Wim Hof is a lot of people they don't necessarily like i see a lot of people especially on youtube breathing from their chest doing wim hof which is even crazier you know it's mm -hmm, full on mm -hmm. seeing people pump mm -hmm. up their chest with yeah, air yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so then what happens even more so people feel dizzy i mean there have been accounts where people um have become unconscious uh because the oxygen levels they drop so low you know that people become yeah. unconscious and so um yeah. What also happens is people um, feel this high, right? And and they shoot themselves out of their bodies. It's a very disembodied experience, in my perspective. And uh, whereas you know, doing practices like Buteco Oxygen Advantage, we're way more in our bodies. Uh, we're way more, um, yeah. We we decrease the risk of dissociating even more. You know, mm -hmm. we're actually mm -hmm. training to be in our bodies more. And I think that's what most of us need way more than feeling high off of breathing and having these ecstatic experiences. Yeah. You know? Yeah. No, that, that's that's really well articulated. And I think that's one of the key points for me as well, that the, the type of people who are attracted to Wim Hof are probably the people that need it at least because it's going to keep them stuck yes. in that state of chronic sympathetic and keep them further away from accessing the ventral vagal, which is what they what they really need. Um, so, so potentially Absolutely. for people who are in a state of dorsal shutdown or do have a tendency towards depression, the occasional Wim Hof, if they have a good mm -hmm. CO2 tolerance, I think is is probably something worth experimenting with. Um, but mm -hmm. I, I completely agree with you in in terms of the 
yeah, it's just, <laughs> it's, 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 it's chasing peak experiences is what mm -hmm. it is. And what is yeah. peak experiences? A lot of times are experiences where there is a lot of adrenaline production in our bodies. And so mm -hmm. when we're mm -hmm. chasing that, we're still not really in a, a, you know, at home in our bodies, we're not, you know, really in a regulated nervous system state, we're, mm -hmm. we're still in dysregulation. And so yeah. uh, in the long run, there's just not really a whole lot of use to that so <laughs> <laughs> yeah i i totally agree um well there were a ton of other questions that i was going to ask you but um i'm conscious of conscious of time so i yeah, have just gonna have to do a second episode <laughs> yeah we'll have to do around two um but i've got five kind of rapid fire questions before we wrap up um if that sounds mm -hmm. good so the first is a simple one what is one book recommendation that you suggest for a deep dive into some of these functional breathing topics that we've been talking about mm, yes i think the best one right now on the market it's actually on my desk here right now is the breathing cure by mm -hmm. uh patrick McEwen. it's his his new book that uh just recently came out um and also i mean i might be biased maybe yes but uh, <laughs> also his other book um oxygen advantage is, yeah. is also a really good read yeah yeah mm. both both fantastic um, mm -hmm. for ring junkies like myself, what is something that we can do to increase heart rate variability? It's simple. Mm, yeah, quite a few things, actually. Uh, one, one thing that I like to do regularly is um, a few vagus nerve practices. So whenever we do uh, a practice to stimulate our vagus nerve, um, we're essentially also working with our heart rate variability and um, to increase it. And uh, for one, there's a vagus nerve massage that you can do. So you behind like your earlobes, kind of like on the side of your neck, just on the bottom of your ears. And if, if you put your index finger there on either side, you feel like a little dip, right? And it's it's like interesting if you massage that it's like a it's, a, it's an interesting sensation right so mm -hmm. that's actually where your vagus nerve comes out from behind from your brainstem and then it goes down your neck and there's this muscle here on the side so you can massage your vagus nerve right here from the, the bottom of your ear down your neck to your collarbone and that's really that's really awesome i like doing that a lot um the other thing is uh, there is a, an exercise that I learned from Dr. Perry Nicholson. And um, because one thing you can do to stimulate your vagus nerve um, is humming. And mm -hmm. um, if you kind of want to up that just a couple of gears, um, you can um, you can do humming, but also pound your chest because here, like around your collarbone is, is where your vagus nerve then uh, wraps around the esophagus. So he, here's what I like to do. Okay. I start Check out it. with VU and then I go into AH and then I go into E. And when I go into E, I like hit these muscles here. You know, mm. I kind of go into this big smile where I'm like kind of um, tensing these neck muscles here on the side. So I'll show you. And so I'm hitting these muscles here. I'm I'm, I'm widening my eyes and uh, and and my my mouth. And um, I do that three times. Uh, and the vagus nerve massage. And um, and there's lots more, but those are two that listeners mm. can do right away. If I like. <laughs> I love that. I'll give that a try. And it, it reminds me of um, 
what James Nestor wrote in his book, Breathe, around how a lot of the ancient chanting practices were actually kind of coincidentally incredibly good at stimulating the vagus nerve. And they were firstly mm-hmm. 5.5 breaths or 5.5 seconds for the inhale and the exhale. And also just thinking now, e- even the, the the practice of chanting OM, it's, it's traditionally AUM and it's like, Oh, and it almost goes mm. from your from vibrating in your belly to into your chest, and then the mm, it's yeah. kind of in your in your head, and you kind of feel the yeah. vibration. And I think yes. it's so interesting how these techniques that science is now kind of figuring out have, in some ways, been practiced for like thousands of years. By coming back, <laughs> having a revival, yeah, yeah to, and the five point five breaths per minute. So yes, coherence breathing is something yeah. I do every day. I do five in, five out. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's definitely a good one for H. Ravi. Awesome. Mm. Um, so, next question: What is uh, the dating breath, and why do you call it that? <laughs> the dating breath. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know it. You know the story. Um, so uh, <laughs> I, uh, as I said, I used to be an anxious dater. Um, and every time I went for, went on a date, I would feel really anxious. And this one time I was in Berlin and I, um, was meant to go on the state and, um, I had the choice between taking public transport or walking 20 minutes. So I opted for walking and I, uh, I was like, well, I was really, really nervous. And so I, I said, I was like, well, what can I do to calm myself down? Uh, and so I just, yeah, I, I did the, I think, it, I think it was the five in five out or four in and eight out. It, it doesn't really matter either one of those, but you can combine them with your steps. And so I was, I was breathing in for four steps and breathing out for eight steps and, and I calmed myself down. So by the time that I met my date, I was super chill. And I can highly recommend anyone who's going on a date to not take public transport or the car, walk, and then do do some breathing exercises, do an extended exhale, uh, and you'll be way more relaxed. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Amazing. Um, finally, what is one thing that you're really excited about in the coming months? Oh, yeah. So currently I'm really excited to go to Portugal on Friday because it could be a potential home base. We're kind of scouting the south of Portugal, uh, the Algarve around Lagos, um, and hopefully also be able to uh, go surfing again sometime soon when my wrist has healed. But yeah, I'm really excited about uh, creating a home somewhere um, and getting a van, getting a dog and just, mm-hmm. start, yeah, having this, having this life by the ocean with my partner. So looking forward to that. Mm. Mm. Mm, oh, and also we're, we're starting our uh, teacher training our breathwork teacher training at the end of October. Uh, it's in German this time around, it's a six month program. So I'm really stoked to, to kick that off. We have around 20 people or so, and mm. yeah, it's exciting. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Yeah. I'm sure that will be incredible. Mm. Okay, well, this has been it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, I know we've probably only scratched the surface of <laughs> what we could talk about, um, yes. but in in the meantime, before round two, uh, where is the best place for listeners to learn more about breathwork alchemy, teach training, your podcast, your blog, mm. all the things? Yeah, currently, I think the best 
the best platform where I'm most active is Instagram. And so it's breathwork.alchemy. Um, but also my website, breathworkalchemy.co, uh, a good place if they can hit me up in the in the DMs on, on Instagram. And I do a weekly live breathwork session there every Monday at 6 p.m. Uh, Central European time. And that's uh, there's also quite a, a bit of an archive by now of like the last 10 or 12 sessions or something. Uh, there's a different theme every week. So uh, yeah, come and, come and hang out, say hi. <laughs> so this was mm. a pleasure. Thank you so much. <laughs> mm. Amazing. So I'd like to close with the, the Rilke line. Um, he said, try to love the questions themselves and live them mm. now. Perhaps you will then gradually, without noticing it, live your way into the answer. With that in mind, what is the question that you're living yourself right now? And what question might you leave our listeners with? Mm. Right now, one of the question one of the questions that I'm living into once more actually is how can I how can I make my days feel more like play? And how can I infuse play into everything I do? So there we go. Okay. Was we there another wrap. question attached to that? What, what, what <laughs> question would you would you leave our listeners with? It could could be the same one. Yeah. Now that 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 is that would be a good question. But I think another one I could leave them with, maybe more in regards to to breath work, is um, ask yourself the question. Stop for a moment several times a day and just check in and ask yourself how's my breath right now and then just observe that's the start of breath work <laughs> awesome well we will wrap the show with that thank you so much <laughs> thank you johnny this was fun i hope you enjoyed this conversation it would mean a lot to me if you could take a few seconds to open up your podcast app and give curious humans a shiny five-star rating. This not only helps more people to find it, but it will help me to get more awesome guests in the future. And if you're not already subscribed, then the Curious Humans newsletter is where I share monthly morsels of interestingness and podcast updates. You can sign up for that at johnny.life. That's J-O-N-N-Y dot life.